Hello, everybody. Welcome uh, on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome Karen Oberg, and I apologize for mispronouncing her name, uh, but I'm not going to embarrass her and me by uh, trying to pronounce it correctly. Uh, anyway, she studies the connection between planet formation, uh, astrochemistry, and the origins of life. Uh, asks such questions as how do chemistry and physics interact during star and planet formation and how do they give rise to uh, the organic composition of the nascent planets? Um, how is organic material distributed in planet forming disks around young stars? Questions like that. Uh, she has an experimental laboratory that uh, simulates the chemistry and physics of interstellar grain mantles. Maybe she'll tell us what those are, I have no idea. Um, radio and infrared observations, often at high spatial resolution, and astrochemical theory. Um, uh, she uh, well, left Sweden in 2001 for Caltech, uh, received a bachelor's degree in chemistry in 2005, uh, received a, uh, a PhD in astronomy in 2009, um, uh, with a thesis on laboratory uh, astrochemistry. Uh, she then moved to the um, Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in October 2009 through 2012 uh, with a Hubble, very prestigious Hubble fellowship uh, where she studied uh, protoplanetary disks. Uh, went for a year to the University of Virginia Chemistry Department and then back to Harvard uh, where she ascended through the ranks uh, in um, 2016. She was named the uh, Thomas D. Cabot Associate Professor in Astronomy, and then uh, more recently she has become a full professor at the same institution. Um, her research in astrochemistry has been recognized with uh, a Sloan Fellowship, a Packard Fellowship, a Newton Lacey Pierce Award, among numerous um, other awards. If I named all of them, there would be no time for her talk. Uh, she is in great demand uh, as a speaker in scientific circles as well as non-scientific circles. She's a very busy researcher and research mentor, and we're delighted to have her uh, today, here's the title of her talk. Uh, please uh, join me in welcoming her here today. Thank you, Steve, for that lovely introduction, and thank you to Lumen Christie for, for having me. It's uh, uh, a delight to be, to be here. I was at the astronomy departments and at the, the Department for Geophysical Sciences the past couple of days, and was very happy that we can add on this day so I can talk here. Uh, with you. So in some sense I'll be talking about the same things that I covered uh, in the scientific settings today but enveloped with some of my thoughts when it comes to why as Christians or, or Catholics for, for most of us why we should think about these topics of exoplanets and potentially habitable and even inhabited uh, exoplanets. Uh, I will probably talk for a little bit less than an hour or so, so there should be plenty of time for uh, questions at the end. I'm very happy to take lots of questions. If you do have any sort of clarifying questions during the talk, please raise your hand. There's no point in sitting through the entire talk and sort of missing, missing something on slide you know, two. Hopefully slide one is clear. And I will get to some of the, the, con the, the concepts that uh, Steve talked about, though, 
perhaps not every single one of them, but you should also feel free in the Q&A. If you also want to know what these icy interstellar grain mantles are, you, you might have to ask at the end instead of uh, hearing about it in, in the talk. So before getting to this uh, topic, I do briefly want to advertise for those of you who are scientists and Catholics uh, that there is a society for us, uh, for you, that's uh, a little bit more than a year, year and a half old now. That's a society uh, of Catholic scientists. Uh, you can Google it, and it, you will get to it, but also the web address is here. And this one is really meant for uh, for sort of three different reasons uh, we, we started this uh, society. Um, one is just for fellowship among the Catholic scientists, who I think uh, often can be a bit isolated in their own departments, especially if their departments are small. But the other two, and uh, that's uh, more than ones that I'm burning for, uh, are to provide a sort of a public, um, an image for the public that science and faith are compatible, that there's no necessary conflict or even tension between the two. And the final one is to help out students who are, you know, a bit more junior. Uh, I know that at least at Harvard there is some anxiety among the Christian students of how they are going to live out their faith as scientists. So feel free to check that out and if you have any questions I'm also happy to answer questions about that. Now there is um, a myth uh, that there is a conflict between science and religion. And uh, I think it is a myth. I have yet to see any compelling arguments why there should be or historically have been uh, a true conflict between science and religion. You can of course find some conflicts between specific people uh, of faith or and without faith. The most of the time it seems to have been between two different people of faith that interpreted Christianity or scientific evidence uh, differently. Uh, if we're thinking about what we mean with that kind of conflict, uh, I think you can think about it either as perhaps an institutional potential conflict, uh, a philosophical one, or a psychological one. Uh, we can touch upon all of them, but I think the one that clearly cannot be true is a psychological one. That is that somehow being a person of faith would make you less of a scientist, or a scientist that, that would naturally lead you away from the faith. Uh, I think we have enough evidence of people who managed to combine the two that that just clearly can't be the case. And here I just pulled up some of the more famous uh, Catholic scientists. I could also put Galileo up there, of course. Uh, if I want, if I had also, uh, I wanted to keep it to four because otherwise it got too cluttered. But it would have been very easy to also find numerous uh, Protestant uh, great great scientists who were very devout, also for their age. And someone like Newton comes to mind, who was, uh, wrote more on uh, metaphysical and theological matters than he did, did on physics. So I think that is just clear empirical scientific evidence that this cannot be uh, the real story, or at least the whole story, when it comes to the relationship between science and religion. So the second thing I said like, is whether there should be, in some philosophical sense, um, a conflict between science and religion. Here, um, at least as Christians, I think it's clear that we are taught, and I came for good reason, that there's only one truth. And therefore, truth pursued through different means, if, pers if pursued honestly and accurately, cannot be in conflict with one another. Uh, and this, uh, 
It's a very fundamental, in some sense, assumption, which within Christianity is backed up by a belief in, uh, in God, who is the source uh, of all truth. Uh, but it is something that I think also, when you're talking to people who are not uh, necessarily people of faith themselves, something that is intuitively true. Uh, that it just uh, would make no sense if you approached the same question from two different directions and you followed all the evidence, and the evidence were real, uh, that you would get two different answers. Um, and that is a very fundamental assumption that we get, that we make both in everyday life and when we do science or any other kind of intellectual endeavor. So I think as Christians, uh, it, is, uh, it should never be fearful to do science or critically pursue a question also with scientific means. Uh, the, it will eventually, like studying the stars, will eventually lead us to Bethlehem. So that is the, why, why I like this, this image. But uh, moving away from that general uh, introduction, I want this, this talk is going to be about planets around other stars and any potential, like what we know uh, scientifically about them, uh, the likelihood of, the, of there being life uh, elsewhere, and then why we would want to study it and think about it uh, as, as Christians or people of faith. Now, there's, uh, I think there's multiple reasons or like multiple overlap between scientific and theological questions when it comes to this topic. The first one is just considering uh, God, God as the creator and that he reveals himself through his creation. So an accurate understanding of creation uh, is good if we want to get to know our creator better. And this is of course true whatever topic you study. I mean, getting closer to the truth about the word is a good thing. But I think there is something special when we are talking about exoplanets and the appearance of exoplanets as, as a reality. Uh, I think that has in a very real way changed uh, our cosmology, changed the cosmos that we inhabit. And when you're doing, doing theology, thinking about creation in different ways, that is going to be implicitly or explicitly affected by the assumptions you make about the world we inhabit, inhabit or the cosmos we inhabit. So the first thing I want to think about then is God as a creator. Like how, how does this discovery of exoplanets affect that? Well, to do that, I think it's good to just take a small detour into history and think about how much our understanding of the cosmos has evolved and how that might have affected how we think about God as a creator. If we look at biblical uh, cosmology, it looks something like this. So what we have is you know, the pillars of the earth, the so in-between, the underworld underneath, the in-between area where humanity lives, and then the, the vault that's separating us from, from the heavens. Now, this is, uh, there, there's something very intimate about this creation, which seems, at least at the first glance, to put humanity at the center of things. We are in this sort of central, in-between region. Uh, the garden was created in this in-between region for us. There's a sense in which this, this, this whole part here was created uh, for us. Uh, but if you look a bit closer at something like Genesis, I think it's actually quite clear that humans are not exactly central to that story. The main actor is God. And this is not the main place or the place where you finally want to end up. 
So I think the arg one of the arguments that has been made as we are expanding the cosmos is there's making this story of God as a creator and his special relationship with man less and less relevant. I think you have to read um, the cosmology of the Bible in a very strange way to, to make that argument, but we'll come back to that. So the next, the, the big development that happened in our understanding of the cosmos uh, came with the Greeks, uh, late, uh, sorry, I guess middle antiquity, late uh, Greek antiquity, uh, when we are developing a more and more sophisticated version of what's shown here. So this is a cosmology where the Earth is sitting at the center, but it's a spherical Earth. That's something that was quite early understood, at least by any by the civilizations that lived close to the sea. And then you have the different planets, which people have realized that there are some of the stars that wander across the sky, um, and then they were put in orbits around the Earth. And then you have the fixed stars quite far away. And in medieval times, adopting this Greek model, they put basically the heavens on the other side. The uh, heavens were, were that God inhabits on the other, other side of these fixed stars. Now, this cosmos is also is, is telling a slightly different story about God the creator. We here have something that is wonderfully hierarchically ordered. There's a great sense, I think, of of order and purpose in this, in this cosmos. And also a clear separation of what's going on here on Earth and in the heavens. So here on Earth, things are corruptible. Where the planets and stars are, we have an eternal, uh, an eternal cosmos that is made of a different kind of matter than we have, uh, have here on Earth. Uh, and again, I would say like one of the criticisms against this and against uh, the medievals more, more rarely against the Greeks, uh, is that it puts humanity at the center. But I think it's important to remember that this, this cosmology, going back to Aristotle and others, um, the center is not the place of honor. This might be the geometric center of the cosmos, but it is not the best place in the cosmos. The center is where things are heavy and gross and decaying and dying, while the beauty and the eternal things are out here in the heavens. And it was actually a, a concern among some theologians when people wanted to move to a heliocentric system for some good or not so good uh, reasons, dependent on whom you read, uh, that it elevated humanity and might lead to more prideful uh, mindset uh, among humanity. Uh, so what happened then with Copernicus, Galileo, and later Newton is that we put the earth among the planets. So either we, we raised up the earth into the heavens, or I think more accurately, in some sense, brought the heavens down to earth. It turned out that the same matter and principles that governs what's going on here, here on earth also governs uh, what the planets are doing. The development of these principles or natural laws in the 17th and 18th century was so successful that it started being sensible to think about the cosmos as a very, very good watch. Uh, watchmaker is something that uh, a watchmaker god or, or a, a mechanical universe is, uh, are descriptions that, that seem sensible when you think about enlightenment cosmology. So this is a cosmology where once you start something, once you 
put an object in motion, you can predict exactly what it's going to be doing for eternity. Where the laws of physics are perfect and they work on everything, and it makes for a very predictable universe, you can maybe see how there's a temptation there to put the creator God at a large distance. Someone who gets it started, but if it's so predictable and just continues running the same way over and over again, why would he stay involved? Uh, and I mean, this is when we have the real development of deism uh, historically. So this is, uh, I would say, this kind of thinking about the universe, um, this mechanistic thinking, is one that s many of us still have as our intuition. This is the physics we learn in middle school and high school, is still the physics of Newton. And I think it's easy to get stuck in this conception of the universe as something actually quite, not static in the sense that doesn't move, but something that doesn't change very much in time, and therefore doesn't need much intervention of any sort. But of course, we know that this is not the, the final word, and maybe this is not the final word either. But in the 20th century, a quite different cosmology developed, a quite different understanding uh, of the origin of the universe. And that's the Big Bang theory. You know, one of the scientists that was on that first slide, Lemaitre, a Belgian priest who came up with, with a theory. And then this uh, work uh, became eventually um, the conventional wisdom of how the universe formed, uh, combining Einstein's equations, Lemaitre's idea, idea and Hubble's observations that we live in an expanding universe. So what is the Big Bang cosmology that we think that we, in we inhabit? Well, it's something that changes over time, that unfolds over time, where new structures develop over time. It's a cosmos that has been around for a very long time for, on human timescales for 14 billion years, which by some has been used to suggest that there's an awful waste of time if it was made for, for us to live in, who has been around for not very long. Um, it is a, as it is a cosmology, it's a cosmos that is incredibly large, which again has um, been used to suggest that we can't possibly be that important because there's so much else out there that's bigger uh, than us, which seems like a terribly bad argument. I mean, elephants are bigger than us, and I don't think they were used to <coughs> suggest that we are not important in the past. Um, but I think maybe the most interesting part of it is there something that's actively unfolding uh, over time. I think it's uh, much easier to see how this would be an interesting universe for God to stay involved in, with also before there were humans like us to make it even more interesting for him. Now, this idea of a cosmology that's emerging is, um, is part of a bigger picture. I mean, if we look in biology, we have something similar happening about half a century before, or like almost a century before the idea of the Big Bang, which is the theory of evolution. So again, we have uh, nat a nature that is uh, emerging and evolving with time. If we look closer to home and where I will be spending most of my time so on stars and planets, we're also learning that they are not eternal. They are something that form and they are destroyed. Uh, and you form different things. You form different stars uh, 14 billion years ago compared to what you do today. 
And you might, you probably form different planets as well, and different planets around different kinds, kinds of stars. So it's uh, understanding, so wha what is exoplanets doing to change our cosmology again? Well, we still believe that the Big Bang uh, co cosmology is real, so we're not going to change that part. But I would argue that a cosmos is quite different uh, where when you look up on the sky, you see the stars, you look at stars in the galaxy, and each of them is somehow just a light. Uh, or if it is its own word, uh, a star that's surrounded by planets potentially habitable. I think in some sense it makes the universe a bit of a cozier place when you look up on the, on the dark, dark sky and you imagine that around, around every star there's actually a solar system with potentially people looking back to you. We'll, we'll get back to that uh, towards the end of the talk. But before going into more metaphysics and theology, I want to spend the next sort of 20, 20 minutes or so just telling you where we stand on, on exoplanets uh, scientifically. So exoplanets are detected in a number of ways, but the main reason, um, the, the main technique that's been used to find the most exoplanets is luckily also the most conceptually simple one. So I'm going to start with, with explaining that one. So if we're looking at the star, uh, I mean, all stars are fairly distant, so we're not going to see the star result uh, like we're doing here, like we would see the sun. But when we look at the star and the planet passes in front of that star, you will see a slight dimming. And this is something that we can detect. I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, it's easy enough to look up, but uh, in the optical, which is where most of these detections are done, uh, people don't think in photons, and I therefore do not have it on the tip of my tongue. But we can uh, definitely look it up together afterwards. So what is shown here is a cartoon of the kind of light curve that people look at to find exoplanets. So on the x-axis here is time. On the y-axis is brightness of the star. And as you see, you'll see a dip in the brightness as the planet passes in front. Now, in addition to finding exoplanets, you can also say something immediately about the exoplanet uh, by looking at just this light curve. You can imagine intuitively that the bigger the planet, the bigger the dip. So we're going to be able to tell the size of the planet based on these kind of light curves. Also, the longer of a, the, the length of the duration here across uh, of, the, of this dip in the light curve is going to tell us something about the orbit of the planet. You can imagine the slower the planet uh, is, the longer it's going to take it to cross, cross the star. So we will learn basically how, uh, how slow it's moving and therefore how far from the star the planet is sitting. So using this technique and others, uh, we have ended up in um, a world where there are thousands of planets detected around other stars. So what's shown here is the number of exoplanets detected each year going back to the first detection in 1995. And what I want you to notice is the y-axis, that we are now up in detecting like a thousand planets in a year. 
Uh, there's some different colors. They're not super important. Um, and this is also actually a bit dated from uh, almost two years, like a year and a half ago. But what it does show here is that there's a single mission, and it's light blue and orange, which has provided most of these detections. So there's a space uh, telescope Kepler, which worked in exactly this way as I just described. Now, the fact that we have detected thousands of planets, um, what does that say about how, how often we have planets around stars? There is about 100 billion stars in the galaxy, and we have detected thousands. Um, that does not sound that impressive, after all. But we actually didn't stare at the whole galaxy to find these stars. We stared at a very small patch of the galaxy. And we did that in a way that you would only detect a small percentage of the planets, even for the stars that we were, we were looking at. So the fact that we are seeing these many thousands of planets, that means that almost every star uh, must have at least a plan one planet around it. So when you look up at the sky, the stars that you look at will likely be words uh, of their own. These planets don't look all the same. They come in a wide variety and, sh and shapes. Um, we, don't, we can't take pictures of these planets like we can of the planets in the solar system. So these are all artist impressions. But they capture at least the sizes that, that we see. And this is a small portion of the ones that uh, have been detected. And that they come also in different compositions. We know that some must be gaseous and some must be rocky. So within the solar system, we have some planets that are small and rocky, like Earth. We have planets like Jupiter and Saturn, that's mostly gas. And we see a, a similar diversity when it comes to the exoplanets, with some extra kind of weird planets show, uh, thrown in for good measure that we have not seen here in the solar system. So, so going from the artist impression, what do these planets, what, what are they? What do they look like? So it shows a distribution of sizes of exoplanets as they have been detected by this space mission, Kepler. And one thing to notice is that the most common planet here is this sort of weird in-between planet that's bigger than Earth, but smaller than Neptune, that would be the smallest planet of the giant planets in the solar system. That's the kind of planet we don't have in the solar system. So it's already telling us that um, we are not the typical planetary system in the galaxy. How atypical is still being argued, but what we can, we can say for sure is that we're not the typical one, which is something to keep in mind once we get to the origins of life and uh, possibility of aliens a part of the talk. So where, where, where do we stand? Like what, what then does this teach us already? Does this teach us something about God as the creator? Well, it seems like the, the kind of planetary system we inhabit, uh, while it's not special in the sense that it exists, uh, there are planets around other stars. Uh, I, this has been sometimes used as, a, as an argument for challenging the specialness of us, of the creation that we, we inhabit, of our relationship with God. Um, that seems like a strange argument for me to make. Uh, this, we don't know if they are inhabited. Maybe they're all there just for 
our viewing pleasure and excitement. I mean, that is still very much a, a possibility. We'll come to the likelihood of that in, in a, some time. But the fact that the creation or the cosmos is more interesting and more complex than we knew uh, a couple of decades ago, I think is something that speaks to the extravagance and creative power of God, not much about his uh, special, his relationship to the inhabitants of Earth. So we'll, we'll put that to the side for a moment and just ponder that he has created a very interesting, very structurally rich universe that is constantly emerging. And that is something that's different compared to what people could imagine, I think, even 100 years ago, even though there were speculations going back into medieval times about that maybe stars were other words after all. And there's a couple of books uh, on that, which I'm happy to recommend if somebody is interested. But we don't want to st stay here. We want to understand what kind of planets these are, especially if we want to think about whether they could sustain life as we understand it or not. So how do we find out something more about these planets than just their sizes? Well, one of the things that we can do is weigh them, is to determine their mass. And if we know their mass and their size, we can say something of what they are made of. So there's a second technique to find and to characterize exoplanets, which is called radio, radial velocity technique. So what we're looking at here is that normally when we think about planets orbiting the sun in, in our solar system, we think about the sun sitting still at the center and then the planets moving around it. But that is actually not true. Uh, if we think about what's happening, things about Newton's uh, equations, what must be happening and what is in fact happening is that both the sun and the planets are moving at the same time around as the center of gravity, which is roughly at the surface of the sun. So it's very close to the center of the sun, but not exactly uh, at the center of the sun. Now, more massive planets move the center of gravity further outside of the star. So in our solar system, the reason that we have the center of mass roughly at the surface of the sun is all due to Jupiter, which is a very massive, massive planet. So if the star is moving, we can detect that by seeing the shifting of spectral lines from the star. And then I'm happy to talk more about spectroscopy at the Q&A if you're interested, but for now, it sounds as just take my word for it that uh, there are spectral lines or that, em that emerge from stars. And when the star moves, those lines move as well. And we can detect that, that wobble of those lines. And with that, we can weigh, weigh the planets. When we then uh, make a figure where we show the mass of the planet versus the size of the planet, we can draw some conclusions of what they're made of. So that's exactly what's shown here. Masses of some detected exoplanets, radius of the same detected exoplanets. And then these different lines here shows the expected relation between radius and mass for different compositions. So if the planets are made all out of iron, that's pretty much the most dense uh, planet we can think of, is that it's just entirely made out of iron then you should have, for a, for a mass, let's say 10 Earth radii, you can get that mass with a pretty small radius. But you could also have uh, planets that are made out of gas. In that case, uh, 
you're not going to get to a mass of 10 Earth masses unless you have a pretty big, a pretty big planet. And what we find, which I think is one of the exciting results coming out of the recent exoplanetary studies, is that when we're looking at small planets, so planets that are of the order of this, this, roughly the same size as the Earth, so this is all in Earth radii here, they at least most of them tend to fall on this line that corresponds to rock. And that's where the Earth would fall as well. So small planets have a tendency to be rocky. Now, why is that exciting, you might ask? Well, we think that the chemistry here on Earth um, that eventually led to the origins of life, though, as we'll come to, it's very unclear what this chemistry was and how much of it we understand, uh, but that having a rocky sort of substrate to work on was important. That it's not going to be easy to have an ordinance of life if you have a gaseous planet, for example. There is no chemistry that, we were, that people have thought of that would make that, that happen. Now, what's even more exciting is that a subset of these small planets, uh, they have been classified as so-called habitable planets. And, and with subset, I mean, we're now talking about between 10 and 15 of them, uh, maybe 20 for those who want to be more, more generous. Uh, so these are ex detected exoplanets around other stars that astronomers have deemed to be habitable. Now, it's important to understand what habitable means when we're, when we're thinking like astronomers. It means something very minimalistic. All it means is that the planet is sitting at the distance from its star where water could be <coughs> liquid. That is, that is it. There's a rocky planet, and on the surface, there are at least some atmospheric conditions under which water could be liquid. Now, this is uh, obviously not all you need for life to, well, we don't know how it orig originates, but if you have life, you can't sustain life with just the same temperature. So we'll, we'll talk some more about the other ingredients soon. But that is already an exciting, an exciting discovery. What's even more exciting is that the number of planets that fall into this category is likely much, much larger than these 12 or 15, which are the ones discovered so far. There have been different statistical analyses thinking about how often you would expect to have one of these planets around the star. Different scientists come up with slightly different numbers. This is still a field that's very, very active. But most come up with numbers that are something like between 5 and 50% of the stars uh, in the Milky Way have a planet in the habitable zone. Most of these stars are not stars like our own, but they are rather tiny stars. We call them M-dwarfs. They're red small red stars are the most common star in the, in the Milky Way. And these are the ones where, which seem, from the current data, to very often possess a, a planet in the habitable zone. One of the most famous systems uh, which made a news, uh, I guess about a year, two years, is it a year or two years ago? Not that long ago. Uh, so thank you, thank you, Dan. Uh, about a year ago, uh, is a TRAPPIST-1 system, which is a fairly nearby, nearby system. So this is a small red star that has seven planets around it. 
And several of these planets are in this uh, so-called habitable zone. So these planets are not rare. And actually, the, uh, the nearest star, uh, is Proxima, uh, seems to also have uh, a star, or like to have a planet in its habitable zone. Uh, so this is exciting. I mean, these are, these are things that are not that far away. We're talking about light years or tens of light years for these different systems. Now, one, one thing to uh, just keep in mind when we're talking about these systems where you have a, dwarfs, a red dwarf star is that the habitable zone will be quite different compared to the habitable zone that we are sitting in around our star. These, I said, are tiny stars, which means that you, get to, you have to get very close to the star to be warm enough to have water be liquid. So this shows a comparison of the Trappist system and the solar system with a habitable zone marked in green. So we are obviously in the habitable zones, and, and Mars is as well, which should be actually a word of caution because Mars does not seem very habitable today. And also Venus is right on the edge of the habitable zone in most people's estimations, also not very habitable. But what I really wanted to show is the whole of Trappist system fits well within the orbit of Mercury, so very, very close to the star. And that might lead to actually to quite different conditions on the surface of these planets compared to what we are used to. Sitting that close to the star makes you a bit vulnerable to any stellar activity that you have going on. So that's something that people are looking into and that I will happily ignore for the rest, rest of this talk. Okay, so we have these planets that have the pot are potentially habitable in that they are the right temperature. Now, as I said, the, this right temperature is set by one sole criterion, that you could possibly have liquid water on the surface. Now, what is the likelihood that these pl Trappist planets, this is an artist impression, we obviously have not been to Trappist and taken pictures. You can see the other sister planets in the, in the background. So what is the likelihood that one of these habitable zone planets actually look like this instead of being in like an arid desert? And why is it so important anyway? Why should we use water as our criterion for habitability? Well, the, starting with the second, second question, um, Water is obviously very important for life here on Earth. But that is not the sole or even the most important reason that people focus, focus on it when it comes to exoplanets. At least not officially. I mean, we all, of course, go in with biases. But the official reason why we're so uh, interested in water on other planets is that water really allows us to have the most diverse kind of chemistry when we're thinking about different kinds of solvents you could have chemistry happen. So, and to have biology, you need to have chemistry. You need to have an efficient and diverse, uh, we think, organic chemistry. And, there's, and so we, it's an excellent solvent. And it also happens to be a very common molecule in, in space, as we'll get to, which is a g good thing when we're thinking about what, what would we expect other uh, sort of living environments and other planets to look like. But before going there, uh, let's think a bit about our solar system. How special are we in the amount of water we have? And how special is the Earth in the amount of water it has? Well, within the solar system, the Earth is not that special at all. So as shown here with the, the blue balls next to the planets or moons, it's just the volume of water that you have in each of these bodies in the solar system. 
So, so here's Earth. We actually don't have that much water if you think about the whole size and mass of the Earth. Um, here are some of the moons in the outer solar system. Europa, Pluto, you know, not the moon, but former planet. Uh, if anyone has questions about why, I'm happy to, to elaborate. Uh, Triton, Callisto, Titan, and Ganymede. So all, all moons uh, in the outer system. And uh, my favorite one, which we'll come back to, which is Enceladus. So in the solar system, water is fairly common. Uh, it, is, it seems like the entire solar system formed in a water-rich environment. And that the Earth just got some water uh, thanks to being in this overall water-rich environment, formation environment. So a very fair thing to ask then is, how often do planets form in water-rich environments? Well, to answer that, we're going to have to just uh, spend a few minutes thinking about how stars and planets form. So this is going to be your sort of introduction to star and planet formation. Um, so hang in there, and I think it's not going to be too complicated, actually. So between stars, uh, space is not empty. If you look at the regions between stars, there is dust and gas. Now, there's not that much per that cubic centimeter or per cubic meter, but it's there. And there are some regions between stars where this dust and gas gets concentrated into what we call interstellar clouds. If these interstellar clouds get dense and massive enough, they will start to collapse in on themselves from their own gravity. And that is the beginning of star formation. So as one of these clouds collapses to form what we call a protostar, so you know, a star in the making, uh, in addition to the central star, which will be where most of this collapsing mass go, you will also see a disk. This disk is there because the initial cloud always spins a little bit. And it's one of the laws of nature that you have to preserve the spin of something or angular momentum. And to preserve that, uh, you put most of the mass in the central star and then most of the spin or angular momentum into the disk around it. This disk, this leftover material, uh, is where planets form around stars. So what we're really asking is how often, when planets are forming in these disks, are these disks full of water? I mean, that is, that is the question that we're asking. Now, we can't study the water content of these disks directly. We just don't have the technical capability to do it. Um, if you want to spend about $5 billion of your taxpayers' money to build another space telescope, it will be trivial, but we don't have that. So we are, we're blind to what's going on here in terms of water. We can see what's going on over here, though. Here, we can use uh, spectroscopy. So that's just how matter interacts with light in a very specific way that allows us to tell what kind of molecules or matter you have when you look towards a certain star. So when we look towards these protostars, and we look in the infrared, uh, we see spectral features that we can associate with water. Um, in fact, water is the most abundant molecule that we see next to molecular hydrogen and carbon monoxide. So it's incredibly abundant at this early phase of star formation. As I said, we can't see what's going on here, but in the solar system, we do have uh, a leftover of our disk, which is uh, comets. 
uh, comets is something that visits the icy bodies, that visits the, inner, visits the inner solar system, and we can take spectra also of them and figure out what's going on there. So the idea is, and the argument I'm going to make, is that by looking at comets, we can show that our disk actually inherited its water from up here. And if our disk inherited its water from these early stages, then other disks probably did as well, and therefore water will be generally available to planets. Now, the way we do that is also with spectroscopy. And I promise this is the last slide on spectroscopy, well, second to last one. Um, but what we can tell when we look at comets is that we can distinguish, first of all, comets have a lot of water, but we can distinguish whether that water is normal or whether it's heavy. So you've heard of heavy water. It's water is normally two H atoms and one oxygen atom. To make heavy water, you replace one of those hydrogen atoms with a deuterium atom or a heavy hydrogen atom. Now, have it getting the ratio of the heavy water to the normal water allows us to say where the water came from, because that's very specific to where it formed. And the ratios we see in these comets can only come from this protostellar water. So we really did. The water in the solar system is really older than the sun itself. And that to us makes it very, that's very for us very compelling evidence for that planets in general form in water-rich environments. So we think we are good uh, on that first criterion, that if planets are temperate to the right temperature for water, they probably do have some water on them. Not all, but probably most of them do. But there's a, there's a second, uh, second ingredient that we need to think about, and that is the organic material. So if you want to have an interesting chemistry happening that leads to life, we need to have some organics that actually react in, this wa in the water that we now think we have. But the whole point of having water was there was a good solvent for chemical reactions. So what does, uh, what, how often uh, do we get uh, what we think we had here on Earth at the early stages, which is that water and land, and then lots of organic molecules swimming around in those ponds or in those lakes that we had on the young Earth. Well, before getting to that, I think it's good to take, think a little bit about what we know about like, which of these molecules are going to matter. To do that, we need to think about the origin on and evolution of life here on Earth, at least what we know about it. So we know that uh, life has developed on the Earth over many billions uh, of years. Uh, the exact starting, uh, when the first life showed up, is contested. Uh, but once it showed up, uh, we had a long time of development of more and more co complex single cell organisms. And then eventually about half, uh, half a billion years ago uh, to a billion years ago, we started to develop uh, larger multicellular creatures and eventually mammals such, such as ourselves. Now the, the origins of life, um, we can put some boundaries on it that I think everyone would agree with. One is that we don't think it's older than the Earth itself, or when the Earth first cooled down to become uh, possible to have normal chemistry, which was a few hundred million years after uh, we had this big impact that caused the moon to form. 
Uh, about around three billion years ago, there is compelling evidence for water when it comes to different kinds of fossils. Uh, however, there is uh, evidence that suggests that uh, or the three, that's 3.5 billion years ago. So this is just maybe 500 billion years ago after it becomes possible to have life on Earth. There is already life from uh, so fossils of bacterial colonies and potentially some isotopic evidence that is more contested. But I think what the real point I want to make is that it didn't take that long for life to develop here on Earth uh, once, once it could develop. And it actually took much longer for life to leave the uh, single cell stage uh, behind. Now, how do you get, though, to this very first, uh, first living organism, which there are debates whether it's definable or even something you would want to define, but something that could, you know, we could have inheritance for, from species to species as well as some metabolism. Well, uh, to that, you probably had something that, uh, that looks like RNA was probably what the, the first species were composed of, maybe hundreds of units of RNA. So you want to know how that hundreds of units of RNA formed. To understand that, you need to understand how the building blocks of RNA formed. And to understand that, you need to understand where the building blocks of the building blocks come from. And there's been many thoughts about that. The most famous one is maybe the Miller-Urey uh, experiment, where they took what they thought was a good analog to the early atmosphere here on Earth, put a charge through it, and looked at all the interesting species they formed, including amino acids, and called victory, because they had managed to almost create life uh, out of uh, inorganic material. Uh, this is no longer a favored scenario to get to this the building blocks, uh, but there are other scenarios that seem to work better. Um, the most popular one uh, right now is that you have hydrogen cyanide as a very important ingredient and then lots of UV light. That seems to get you to actually all the building blocks that you would want for then forming these uh, biomolecules. So then you can ask the question, how often do we see molecules like this in disks where planets are currently forming. How common is it for planets to form in these environments rich in these key, key organics? Uh, that is something that we can actually start to, to address uh, with current telescopes. So this is a cartoon of one of these disks uh, around the star. Uh, there's the amazing new telescope down in Chile called ALMA, which allows us to study these disks in great detail. Uh, so with that, we can uh, see great structures. These are some before and after picture, what we could do before ALMA came, what we can do now. So here are these two blobs, are actual observations of these disks, but as you can see, you can't see very much at all. Uh, with ALMA, we can see that these disks uh, really look very much like the cartoons that we had before. So what you see here, um, you can also come up afterwards if the light is not good enough, is that we see these dark lanes carved out in these disks that we think are due to planet formation, one way or another. You can think about the planet forming as sort of carving out uh, these lanes. We can also take pictures of the chemistry that's happening in these disks. 
And we also see similar kinds of structure that's telling us that we can um, make associations between the physics that's going on in these disks and what kind of chemistry that you will have available for planet formation. In particular, we can in, so this is the same disk that I showed before, so the same kind of structure. And in these disks, we can use again spectroscopy, and this is actually the final time that I'm mentioning that word, uh, to tell that you have molecules such as formaldehyde. You know, one small, fairly common organic here on Earth seems to be very common also when you have planets forming uh, around other stars. And this is not the only one molecule we are detecting. We're detecting lots of little hydrocarbons. Uh, cyanides, which, you know, not very good for you, uh, but very good for the origins of life. As I said, this is like the centerpiece of current origins of life uh, chemistry theory. And as you just saw, formaldehyde and methanol and other uh, nice small organic molecules. So how often do planets, if a planet forms in here, how often does it actually manage to accrete these molecules onto its surface and into its atmosphere where you could actually have an interesting ordinance of life chemistry? Well, to, we can do theoretical work on that, but to finally answer that, you really want to take spectra of these exoplanets and then I guess that was one more time and uh, figure and actually check directly what's going on in these, uh, uh, in these uh, atmospheres, in these planets. And just an example, you see here that in theory, if you could take, you know, do perfect observations of planets, as perfect as you can do here in the solar system, you should be able to tell the difference between uh, planets that have, you know, a nice water and ozone-rich atmosphere compared to planets that are probably dead, that have, ma have mainly CO2 uh, in their atmospheres. If you really want to check whether these planets are not just um, have the right chemistry but are actually have biology, you are probably eventually going to have to take a picture of them. Uh, this is going to be really, really hard, but not impossibly hard. I guess that's uh, I want to give you the hope that this is uh, not something we're going to do next year, probably not in 10 years. But on sort of a civilizational timescale, this should absolutely be possible. Uh, so what's shown here is you know, what kind of, to get a certain resolution, how big of a telescope you would need to see an Earth at this resolution uh, in the sort of nearest, some of the nearest uh, planetary systems. So to see this, which is probably going to start telling you that there's an ocean and maybe vegetation going on on this planet, you would need a telescope of roughly 460 kilometers big, which you're not going to build in a, in a single dish that size, but you could build multiple dishes that talk to one another that size. It's going to be really hard, but as I said, not, not actually totally impossible. So where I want to end up is in thinking about what, what we know, what this tells us about our place in the universe. I think with a, with a wealth of exoplanets, we've already seen this uh, sort of wonderful creativity that's flowing through the universe. But I think there's also a bit of anxiety in many in thinking about, well, what if they're all inhabited? I mean, are we st how special or non-special does that make us? Does that make sense in the story of creation as we understand it with our, what seems to be a very special friendship uh, with God? Um, 
So before getting to that, and I just wanted to sort of recap where we stand so we actually know, know where we are. Uh, so we have planets around almost every star. Many of these planets could potentially sustain life. They fulfill the minimum criteria uh, of what we think are needed for the audience of life. That is the right temperature, access to water, and access to many of the key organics that we think are needed. Now, minimum requirements does not mean that life will originate. We do not know how life originated here on Earth, whether, it was whether it's a really easy natural process, whether it's a really, really difficult natural process that happens extremely rarely, or if it's a natural process at all, which, you know, as a scientist, it's not going to be your, you know, starting hypothesis. I'm obviously trying to find the natural path uh, to this. But that is not something that we at this moment know, because we don't know that pathway. And uh, so we're going to have to hold both possibilities in our hands, both that maybe each of these planets has life, or that none of them do. Now, I said I think we are, on a civilizational timescale, we're going to figure out, uh, that we're going to get an answer uh, to that question. And, w and which it ends up with, I don't know, but I think there is, we're learning something about the creator, like once we do. There is, imagine that every one of these planets is filled with life. There is something exuberant and almost playful about that thought. And I'm not talking about intelligent or rational life at this point, but just life at all. Um, something about the extravagance is, it, it, I think it makes sense to many when you think about the creative power of God that that would be the kind of universe uh, to expect. Now we know that the many of the natural conditions are fulfilled. But there's also some beauty to the opposite. Uh, there's also something greatly extravagant about the God that created an entire universe just for us. And that we are sort of the lone ark carrying all of life through, through space and time in the universe. But I think you would get a different intuition about God as a creator and God's personality, if you can use that word, about God, dependent on which of those turn out to be true. Now, going to exoplanets and figuring that out, or studying exoplanets to the detail we need to figure this out, is going to take some time. But I would argue that you actually don't need to go all the way to exoplanets to start getting an idea of this, whether this is true or not. We do have places in the solar system that also fulfill many of these minimum requirements. Remember that initial slide I showed where it showed there was water at many places uh, in, the, in the solar system? We think that where there's <coughs> liquid water, which there is in a subset of those bodies, there's also organics and therefore potential this ordinance of life for ordinance of life chemistry. Particularly, there are a couple of moons in the outer solar system, Enceladus and Europa, which have this liquid water uh, for sure. Enceladus is uh, my favorite. It both of these moons have an icy, icy shell and then a subterranean uh, ocean of water. Um, Enceladus is my favorite because it's spewing out some of its water into space which means you could probably actually go there and figure out what's in that water without as much cost as it would take to actually drill down uh, into one of these moons. So this is obviously something we should do. If you ever are in power, you sh we, should, we should go to Enceladus and figure out what's there. 
But where I want to end up is just going back to the specialness of us, the creation of us when we're thinking about exoplanets and whether that in any way is threatened by the possibility, not just that there's life elsewhere, which I think is most people find delightful and not the least threatening, uh, to whether there's rational, uh, rational animals among those animals and vegetation and beings. Uh, there is, uh, of course, uh, biblical sources of extraterrestrials, as we all know. They have visited many times. They're called angels. Uh, but I would make the argument that, well, these, of course, do not in any way threaten the special friendship between God and humanity. But that these are maybe not that good of an analog when we're thinking about aliens. These are, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, I think would call them intellectual uh, beings or spiritual beings, while we are uh, rational animals. And there is clearly a different kind of interaction between them and God compared to between us and God. So how about other rational, rational animals? Is that likely, is it theologically possible for that to happen? If so, is it necessary that they fell? If it's necessary that they fell or possible that they fell, um, how would they be saved? Uh, would they be saved through their own, having their own incarnation? Uh, or they somehow be saved through uh, the incarnation, as I think is the most straightforward uh, reading of the Bible, that God died, Jesus died once for, for all. But I think you could also argue that it could be all humans. Well, um, I don't know what is plausible or even, uh, or obviously not what has happened, since we don't even know if, if these rational animals exist. Uh, but I was delighted to find out that St. Thomas Aquinas sort of thought about this a very long time ago, the possibility of having incarnation happening more than once. So the first thing is, is, is that he discusses this. Um, why was it possible or fitting for having incarnation at all when it comes, why, why could God be, why was it fitting for God to become incarnate as a human being rather than say like as an angel or some other animal. And St. Thomas uh, identifies two criteria for this fittingness. One is the dignity of the being, and among the material beings, the humans clearly have the highest dignity, at least uh, here on Earth. The other is the need for salvation. There are some theologians that have argued that the incarnation could happen without uh, there being the, the fall or sin, as uh, St. Thomas does not believe that. So he thinks that these two criteria uh, are what is uh, needed for the fittingness of the, of the incarnation. So this could, of course, apply to other rational animals as well that, have a similar, that should have a similar dignity. Furthermore, St. Thomas also thinks about would it be, could you have the incarnation happening multiple times? Could other persons of the Trinity become incarnate? He says, absolutely, yes. There's no reason that this would not be within God's power. His power is not lessened by the first uh, incarnation, or as I think is many of our intuition, the only incarnation. Um, so philosophically possible, yes. But then, of course, it comes to the correct interpretation of some of those Bible passages that, as I said, at least the most straightforward reading seems to be that it only actually happened once. But uh, with those uh, Thomistic reflections, uh, I would like to end this and open up the floor for any questions.